So when you're not doing ouch and you're not being Ben Affleck, we'll talk about that later, and you're not reassuring us that we're not going to all die from Ebola, you are doing things like this Horizon series where you went and stayed in the jungle, which I thought was amazing, with a tribe, and you really did stay with them. There was no going to the hotel at night and coming back in the morning. And watching you eat a diseased monkey was really disturbing. (laughs) I was like, wow. I'm really pleased that you brought this up. It's very easy to have a breach in protocol when you've got that much blood or bodily fluids around. It's very easy to have a breach in protocol where where you can catch the virus by wiping an eye or maybe get a needle stick injury or something like that. But that, that isn't the situation that we're going to be in for, for most of us, even if we're sitting next to someone with a bowler on an underground train. So what you're saying is no mile high club on the way back from Guinea with a random sick stranger. I would say that if you're into sleeping with ill-looking strangers from West Africa, <laughs> but otherwise, um, otherwise you're probably going to be okay. I think um, for anyone who hasn't seen Operation Ouch, I was thinking of a way to describe it. And I think it's very, very good because it um, has certainly taught me some amazing things. Like, I had no idea that you sneezed through your mouth. I found that really quite amazing. And I think it's kind of an academic jackass. (laughs) You basically (laughs) persecute yourselves for for the good of other people. It's it's quite selfless. (laughs) Do you think that being an attractive um, Ben Affleck doctor, that you're being a bit selfish by leaving the UK and going to America? Do you think you're depriving the UK of your presence? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna accept the premise of that question, and um, yeah, um, <laughs> that my experience of being in the UK was that no one was particularly sorry when I left. <laughs> no one ever says, "Well, I'll just have one flaming sambuca and then go to bed." Do they? That's so. It's going to be an off-the-hook evening, as opposed, as opposed to, you know, it would, it would just be very unusual if over the course of a, of a, of a family meal, you just started with a, with a little shot of tequila, and then you maybe had a glass of wine, and then half a glass of beer, and then finished off with a sip of port, and then you go, well, I feel great the next morning, maybe your drink is fine, but of course no one ever does that. I, get, I mean, maybe they do, I don't know, that's just not what I... I feel like I want to bring my family up that way now. <laughs> just, just like always... It's another course. Have another shot. That would be so good, wouldn't it? To just sort of, you know, round for shots, or just like your random coffee morning. It's just have shots, you know. But then that is healthier. Single shot of blue curacao and then <laughs> off to work. So let's talk about some serious stuff for a minute. Let's talk about Tinder. Um, so you swiped right on a girl and she gets beyond excited. What is it that she's going to put in that first message that's going to make you go, yes, that is the one or the one for tonight anyway? I don't think, I think that's too hard a code to crack. I think you're probably not looking for that, that one thing. I, I am. I'm absolutely looking just, for that one thing. Just really, you <laughs> think there's something you could say that would just 
Yes. Do you want to hear mine? Do you want to play Titanic? I'll yell iceberg and you go down. <laughs> you are listening to the True Lad Podcast. Perpetual motion. I got the potion. Perpetual motion. Put your faith in me. Don't you know that I'm the man? Understand, I'm the only one who can. I'm the bad and make you glad and medicine. My name's Sean Van Tullican and I'm the centre of um, Children's BBC's Operation Ouch and I do a bunch of other things as well. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, okay, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today um, is because you know a lot about Ebola, so tell us about that. So what's interesting about Ebola is that it's this really, it's this great sort of Hollywood disease, which is really exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it's a book, it's a, it's a disease that we've written movies about and we have kind of thrillers, thrillers about and so on. And, and what's disappointing about it, I guess, when you study Ebola is that it is quite hard to catch. And so even though, I mean, I live in New York and we, we're all looking for the next apocalypse. We all want to live in the kind of, you know, in the, whether it's 28 Days Later or I Am Legend or any of these movies, everyone in New York feels like they're preparing for that. Ebola isn't going to be that. Um, because it isn't the right kind of virus uh, to be transmitted in a major Western city. It's too easy to control. So how do you catch Ebola? Because I think one of the things people seem to be sort of acting like it's flu or it's airborne or something like that. Yeah. Well, so, so there is one. There was one study that was done in monkeys which suggested um, that it could be airborne under laboratory conditions. But in humans, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that this is primary mode of transmission. So people have travelled by airplane before and infected small numbers of people or, or no people on the airplane they've been on. So it seems like um, most of the uh, routes of transmission are through direct contact with bodily fluids, which means you'd have to kiss, kiss someone or you'd have to, so you'd have to get bodily fluids on a mucous membrane, which is in your mouth or on those other kind of surfaces, like in your eye or up your bum or something like that. Um, and or you'd have to get blood on a cut. You'd have to have a cut on you and get their blood or their bodily fluids into the cut. And those things are quite hard to do with a stranger. And the other thing about Ebola is that it's not contagious until you're symptomatic. And so people with Ebola are quite easy to avoid kissing or having sex with because they look terrible because they've got Ebola, which is one of the most big... Well, it's not, it's not, it's not like you're going to accidentally sleep with someone with Ebola unless that's what you're really into. So uh, it means that even, even, if you're, even if you're not sure if they've got Ebola, you're probably not going to be spending a lot of time with them. You'd probably wash your hands after you've, 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 you've hugged them or whatever. So, um, that, so it's, caught, it's caught that way. And I guess the, the confusing thing for people is that you say, oh, well, it's not so contagious. And yet these guys in Africa who are working in the Ebola epidemic caught Ebola despite wearing all their protective gear, they're wearing masks, they're wearing suits and all the rest of it. Um, but they're exposed to massive quantities of blood, mainly blood, um, also vomit, diarrhea, um, and saliva. And so it's very easy to have a breach in protocol when you've got that much blood or bodily fluids around. It's very easy to have a breach in protocol where, where you can catch the virus by wiping an eye or maybe get a needle stick injury or something like that. But that, that isn't the situation that we're going to be in for, for most of us, even if we're sitting next to someone with Ebola on an underground train. 
So basically no mile high carb on the way back from Guinea. I would say that if you're into sleeping with ill-looking strangers from West Africa, <laughs> otherwise, um, otherwise you're probably going to be okay. I think um, for anyone who hasn't seen Operation Ouch, I was thinking of a way to describe it. And I think it's very, very good because it um, has certainly taught me some amazing things. Like, I had no idea that you sneezed through your mouth. I found that really oh, yeah. quite amazing. And I think it's kind of an academic jackass. <laughs> you basically <laughs> persecute yourselves for, for the good of other people. It's, it's quite selfless. <laughs> it's, really, um, it's really nice doing it with Chris because we get to do all these things that you otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't get to do. I mean, there'd be no reason to film yourself. And the thing, film yourself sneezing, I mean, that... that that's my probably my favourite example of a thing that nobody knows that we did on Ouch. So when I ask, I'll ask colleagues, I've asked friends, I've asked professors of medicine, why do you sneeze? And everyone says, oh, you sneeze to blow stuff out your nose, and that is categorically untrue. You sneeze to make yourself effectively cry through your nose and wash your nose out. Um, and I would say every week in Ouch, there's something like that where if you, even if you're a doctor, you can watch it and go, uh, never really thought of it like that. I didn't know you could run a radio-controlled car on urine, or I didn't know you could, you know, whatever the thing might be. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's good, and I'm going to put some links up so people can have a look at it, because some people will be thinking, I have no idea what you mean, and other people will be thinking, yeah, I do that instead of doing my coursework, which you should be doing whilst watching it. <laughs> I'd say that you should do your coursework, Absolutely. but we managed to get the word osteoblast into ouch, um, which is aimed at kind of, you know, six, eight, nine-year-olds, something like, something like that. Um, and osteoblast is a word that I learned at medical school. So we managed to get some quite, quite good stuff in there. I mean, the thing, the thing that we wanted was that kids would know, would they be able to treat, your, treat their bodies the way you think about a car if you knew how to be a mechanic? That, you know, you might not know everything, you might not be able to fix yourself, but you at least wouldn't be afraid to ask questions. And I think most, we, we just don't learn any of this at school. So, so schools don't teach you how to look after your house, they don't teach you how to be a mechanic and then she has to look after the car and they don't teach you how to look after your body. And I think kids should be empowered to ask questions about, you know, why is my poo runny some days and not others? What is this snot? Why can't I taste stuff right when I've got a blocked up nose? Things like that. Because then once you know about snot, you can then start to think about whether or not it's worth getting rid of the snot when you've got a cold and, you know, should you pick your nose and all of these things. <laughs> so for kind of the rest of the time when you're not doing TV you did a Horizon thing as well that I watched um, where you went and lived um, amongst I can't remember the tribe's names do you have to tell me that um, and I was amazed watching that because most people um, say you know we're going to go and do something like that and you think yeah 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 they're going to go home at night they're going to go to the hotel and you only see you know select bits on film but you really did go and live there and watching you eat what looked like a diseased monkey was really disturbing I was like, wow. I'm really pleased that you brought this up because <laughs> when we made when we made that show, everything on, on telly had been sort of bullshit up to that point. I mean, Bear Grylls was staying in the Hilton and claiming that he was sleeping on a glacier and all this stuff. And we had to go and do it all. All the scandal about that. The BBC had made that show about the Queen. It was a few years ago and they'd, they'd cut it to make it look like she was angry about something when she wasn't. So there's this big scandal and they said, no, everything's got to be true from now on. So yeah, we went and ate monkeys and we lived with, well, we lived with the Bayaka pygmies in Congo. And then we lived with um, a group called the Ashaninka in Peru. And both those groups had really not, um, they lived without electricity. They'd seen very few Westerners. 
So we lived in Congo with the Bayaka Pygmies, who are a nomadic group of hunter-gatherers. And then we lived in Peru with the Ashaninka, who take lots of hallucinogenic plants. And in both cases, they hadn't seen really any Western medicine and hadn't spent any time with Westerners or with Western gadgets. So the Pygmies who with hadn't seen a camera, for instance, which is quite, I mean, that's quite unusual nowadays. And um, it was a very, very strange, immersive experience. But it, it was really good for two young doctors to do that because you just go, yeah, we don't know anything. We don't, we don't know how to be doctors in these environments. Do you think as well, because one of the things I always think with these situations is whether it's right to intervene, whether it's kind of arrogant of us to think, oh, we'll come in here with all our knowledge that they obviously don't have and tell them how to do it. And I think that for me, watching it, there was um, there's a baby. I'm gonna I'll put the links on the in the information for people who want to see it because it's on YouTube. And there's a baby that is clearly very very ill. And I was watching it thinking I can't watch this. I can't watch these people doing these deranged things to this poor baby who clearly just needs medicine. And I was sat there thinking I I don't know how you sat back and obviously it was the right thing to do to allow them to do their thing and not displace the the medicine man and things like that. But watching them do what they were doing and, and seeing the baby getting ill is it's just so incredibly hard and I think it was really good the way you allowed them to do their thing but also when you just stopped it because I was like someone make this baby okay it's, it's too, it was too bad <laughs> I think the thing that we we felt about that I mean that was very difficult we, we had an argument while we were there about whether or not we should do something and in the end the decision to not do something was partly to not undermine the local traditional healer Mm. Um, you know, it's only a community of 50 people. So you don't, if you if you take away their traditional healer standing, that's pretty bad for them. But also because we don't really know what we're doing. Without a hospital around me, I'm, I'm pretty useless as a doctor. I mean, we, we, we were pretty confident the kid had malaria. We didn't know what else he had. We had anti-malarials. But by that point, he's already got severe malaria. So it's very difficult to say what we did definitely made a difference. And in the end, the traditional healer was a really sweet, open-minded guy. And he said, look, we'll do a bit of your medicine, we'll do a bit of my medicine, and hopefully they'll both work. And weirdly, at the end of that show, the kid was still very ill. And I guess I would have bet money on, on, the, on, the, on the poor little boy. He was called Majenji. Um, I would have bet money on him not surviving another year. I mean, the, the, the pygmies have a very high under five mortality rate. So, you know, possibly as high as 20 or 25% of the kids under five will end up dead. Um, and Chris, bizarrely, my, my brother Chris went back to Central African Republic a few years later and they migrated up there and he met up with Mujenji, just sort of randomly bumped into him or to his mum. And, you know, there he was looking great. So oh, I needed to know that. That was going to be my next question. I needed to know oh, no, if he was still OK. And then, and then the, the other episode, Chris has just coincidentally, bizarrely ended up in these really odd, far-flung places and just gone back to them for various other projects. And... Um, the, the the kid with the abscess in Peru also um, was alive a year later. That's amazing, really, isn't it? But I think you you brought up the, the kind of arrogance of, of Western medicine and, and of kind of Western the idea of Western intervention in, in poor um, communities or more traditional communities. And I think in general we're we're wrong to do do much fiddling. We're, we're very bad at we're bad at fiddling in the mm. developing world. We're bad at fiddling at home. We're not good at solving the problems of poverty and homelessness um, in London, alone, alone in Congo. Well, that's what's so ridiculous. And I think that 
it's not, this wouldn't be a view that I share, but I think there are a lot of people who think that, you know, why are we giving aid to foreign countries when we've got problems of our own and blah, blah, blah. And obviously I, I disagree with that. I think we should help everyone we can help. But I can understand there is a sentiment in that that is okay, which is that there are so many problems here we don't know how to solve. It's a bit amazing that we're like, here we come to solve your problems and we've got plenty of our own. <laughs> it's like... Really, it's a really, really, is that such an interesting way of putting it? Because I, I think... I wrestle with the same thing because I, I hate it when people say, oh, you know, we, we shouldn't be spending all this money on aid to Africa because it, it's usually motivated by sort of a, a lack of generosity. And you think, no, this, you know, poverty in sub-Saharan Africa is so extraordinarily dreadful. It's not that they're happy, but they're poor, you know, the poor, but they're happy. It's, it's really bad. Um, rural or urban poverty in, in Africa and most of Asia we're not very good at fixing it. And so if you want if you want to make the world a better place, probably improving the way we trade with countries and improving our ability to not encourage wars around the world would be much, much better ways of doing this. Um, I mean, if you want to make the world a better place, starting a business and paying people a living wage and treating your employees right is probably the best way of doing it. Um, which isn't to say that aid organisations and charities don't have their place, but there's no reason, there's no precedent for charity or aid making a whole region more sustainable and, and creating economic growth over a long period. Does that make sense? I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit corny about that, but does that make sense? No, no, I totally understand. I think as well, because there's another dilemma, isn't there, where if you shop somewhere um, like Primark, other cheap, terrible institutions are available um then you're supporting a kind of the sweatshop industry okay but if you yeah. don't shop at primark other terrible institutions are available then also then they don't get a demand for the work and they don't get the wages and i had a situation recently where i really really wanted these certain curtains for my sitting room and i couldn't find them anywhere so the only way i was going to get them is to get someone to make them and i could have got someone to make them in the uk at an astronomical price and so i went on um a certain trading site and I found a company, and the guy was called Alan from Japan. I don't think he was called Alan, but that was his name. Um, and he said like his his sort of factory can make them, and he quoted me a ridiculously cheap price. So I said, no, I will pay you directly, and I'll pay you like a you know a fair amount of money. But I want to know that the people who make my curtains also benefit from that money. Now he said he would do that. Whether he did or not, I don't know. But I guess that's like terrible because it made me feel <laughs> better. But I think this is the problem. We we love cheap stuff, and buying their things and, and trading with people does, of course, then mean that their demand's higher. They can take more people on. But if the people are kind of being treated badly what's what's the thing do you not shop at those shops to sort of say no to sort of these sweatshops that then mean these people don't have jobs or do you shop at them in the knowledge that you're supporting an industry that's pretty awful really i think it's probably i think that's that's probably not the it's not it's not a, it's not a two-part decision in a way I and mean, i think it's not one thing or the other i think you can i think you can shop at primark but be incredibly conscious of the bad working conditions of those people and be agent for change so we can you know it, it is possible to raise standards for people in bangladesh i mean the, for instance I, I i won't get all the names right now but i want to say i want to say um monsoon and a number of other high street brands have said that they will put money towards maybe it isn't monsoon so don't buy monsoon on my say so but, <laughs> but a number of high street brands have said they'll put money towards improved safety 
median wages and working conditions mm. in the factories when their garments are made. And they've done that because there's pressure from people on the street. Now, but you don't have to be an activist, you don't have to be manning a picket line to read, to, to respond to those articles in the newspaper, to tweet about it, to gently nudge for that on Facebook, to buy garments from companies that do that. I think, I think there are trends that you can be a part of that push companies in the right direction. I mean, if you think of all of, you know, the whole of modern Western industry used to not give workers holidays, used to not give people living wages, you know, and, and gradually through agitation locally and through international pressure to raise standards, people do it. So I just don't think it can be done overnight. Mm. Um, that maybe sounds a little bit half-hearted, but I, I think no, no, if you're someone right. who worries about where your clothes come, come from, it is reasonable to say, buy from Primark, but apply pressure to Primark to change. Yeah. I think one of the other things I really think, I was thinking the other week, you know, you, I saw some homeless people and you realise that particularly when the weather's bad, how tough it is. And I thought if somebody could design a bag that's also a like a kind of waterproof and so in that bag you have a pop-up tent you know one of those tents that kind of you just throw and it pops up so that's like a shelter and a foil blanket rather than a knitted one because obviously knitted ones get wet and dirty and spread disease and fleas and all that and I was thinking if you could give like and then it had like I don't know like a packet of paracetamol some plasters sort of like I don't know maybe emergency agent a foam card in so it's almost like a survival pack whether you know there would be a situation where you could make a charity where you could provide that so instead of sticking your pound in and getting your pin badge you stick your pound in and you get like the survival pack for the homeless person yeah and then the, i looked into all of this because this is one of my wonderful ideas and um i found out very quickly that in order to make them cheaply enough to make it work i'd have to have them made in a factory you know in the in goodness knows where and the trouble with that is then those people aren't working in good conditions so do you say that it's okay to do that because what I'm doing in the end is actually helping people who are homeless over here or and I just sort of I found myself thinking that's what's so difficult about it all of it because people who could help don't seem to always be willing to help and I think the trouble is then you go and source it from somewhere else and it's like if you source it from somewhere that's actually then making those people's lives bad is that actually a good thing to do at all? <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, really, it's really tough to... Um, I think... So the sweatshops question is really interesting because even if you say, look, I don't give a shit about working conditions, I don't care about that, I'm just going to buy from the sweatshops and the markets, well, if those people don't like working in the sweatshop, they can get a different job. If you're just going to be a harsh economist about mm. it, still, Marta Sen, who's probably the world expert on poverty and, and development, uh, he won a Nobel Prize, he's an economist, Indian economist that works in the, in the States at the moment um, will say sweatshops improve the economy. Sweatshops overall are good. But for the generation of people who have to work in the sweatshops, it's a, it's a, it's a, a short, miserable existence. But they save money, their kids have different lives, and you grow a middle class in that country, or at least a lower middle class. So in the end, I think that you can separate the arguments and go, one is a really clear humanitarian argument for a guy who is on the street freezing or starving mm. and needs, needs immediate relief. And then the other is about long-term development. And so the, the other part of giving out bags to homeless people is, is, of course, you don't want to make it easier to be homeless. What yeah. you want to do is make sure that people don't have to be homeless because we have a mental health system that looks after them. We have um, 
good education, we have an economy that's thriving and so on. And so even if you're handing out bags for homeless people and making their lives transiently better, that won't change the world. So you still have to be an agitator, whether you're agitating for improved care and facilities and help for homeless people, or whether you're agitating to make the world a better place for the people in the sweatshops. So it's kind of, the trouble is, I guess, it's like you can go and stick a plaster on it, but it's a political thing that has to change. And I think that's the problem, is I can't change the political aspect, but I could give the man on the street something that makes his life a little bit easier. But I think you, t- you can change the political aspect a bit. Um, I mean, at least, in a, at, least in a, at least in the UK, you have a vote for starters. I mean, you can elect a government that gives a shit about homeless people. And about any, you can elect a government that gives a shit about any kind of marginalised community that are having a tough time. And, and then the other thing you can do is that you, you can then apply pressure to that government or to the businesses you're, you're dealing with. So I, I, I feel like we, we, all have some, we all have a little bit of power to do it. We can all start to lean more towards being, to caring in multiple ways. I mean, so the, the medical work I do is very much about emergency relief. And, and everyone who works in that world, works in war zones and disasters, says, yeah, but you're not fixing the underlying problem. Well, so it's still okay to do something homeless people even if you haven't made the big political change well then maybe i should become an mp i'd be great at being an mp do you, th- do you think about that well i do and then i think about how ridiculous it would be <laughs> 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 although i think that i could make it a lot more fun and a lot more understandable i wouldn't be willing to be corrupt and i wouldn't be willing to do things that negatively affect people because it makes me liked by other people who want to cut budgets and I wouldn't close all the sports centres so I'd probably be a really bad financial MP we'd be in lots of debt in my like constituents <laughs> I, I wouldn't be able to say no to anybody I'd be like yeah let's find them more money <laughs> I don't know I'd probably be um yeah, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't have any expenses. Every job I've ever done, where it's people have been at the core of it, I've never had expenses that's ended up costing me money. So I think I'd be like, I'd be really bad. <laughs> it wouldn't work. You'd be like that. You'd be. You'd have the only expenses scandal where the scandal was that you hadn't claimed any expenses. Yes. I always say that. You'd I think have, you'd have to like walk home from from the House of Commons. Cause you, but there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> If it meant that that, you know, that £20 taxi then meant that we could put that into some sort of system where, I don't know, maybe there was some childcare for some people who really need it or there's some food for people. And one of my other things was I was lobbying on Twitter the other week for the supermarkets to help the food banks because... Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to bully people. Um, but nicely. Um, and I think one of the things that... They replied, didn't they? I think... Yeah. I think um... Ocado replied and Morrison's replied. Yeah, they did. And then I asked Tesco's and Asda and Aldi why they didn't reply. <laughs> so they have now replied. Um, so I think the thing for me is I, I think what was so depressing is food banks are really good and nothing depresses me more than hearing people say food bank scandals, people with money go... They don't. It's absolute... It's another one of these stupid, badly publicised benefit bullshit things. And if you think if you go to a supermarket and you get buy one free... And if you basically, if you bought... You can buy value pasta, you can buy value oats, you can buy sort of value milk. It may not be great, but the point is if you could do things like that, you can actually feed a family who otherwise would go without food. And I think it's been really bad, the publicity food banks have had, because they're actually really good. And I think the supermarket should give them donations. I think that would be really good. And everybody should. And if you hate people, you should give stuff to the animal shelters too. That's another one of my things. But I like this. I'm going to become an MP. I think everybody should vote for me to be an MP. I need to find somewhere to be an MP of, though. 
um, I think that would work really well. I mean, that, that seems to me, I don't know, oh, what am I saying here? Hang on a minute. That, um, Emily for MP. Because <laughs> if, you, if you run, I don't, like, you could be an MP or not, but I think like, you don't have to become an MP. You can just run and force other people to then address your questions. Like, I always think that's, that's the good thing about politics is that you don't, it's like, people say, oh, you've got to be in power. And it's like, no, power is making the people in power feel uncomfortable. That, that's, that's when you're wielding power. Don't doubt my appointment already. Do <laughs> don't settle on me not winning. Don't give up. Where would it be? Which, which, which seat would you have to... Um, I don't know. I think that um, I'd have to do like Derbyshire or Sheffield or something. I think that they they like it's very BNP and Conservative, so I don't know. I think that could be an interesting one. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> I'm not very BNP or Conservative. Um, so moving on uh, from me being an MP, which we should, I'm going to do a podcast about Emily becoming an MP. So if anybody wants to get on board on my campaign or work out how I actually do it, then let's let's make me an MP. Um, <laughs> I might regret starting this one. Okay, so I've got five pounds and I want to spend my five pounds to make the best difference in the world because there's terrible things happening everywhere in Syria, in Gaza, in Iraq, just everywhere. So what do I do to make my money? Like, where do I put it? What do I do with it? What do you, what do you want to happen? Like, what's your idea of the best? I want, to do, I want to do the nicest thing. Like, what's the most helpful thing I can do? Yeah, because I think the trouble is, you know, we, we're all seeing these things everywhere. They're all over the news. They're all over the TV. It's, I think the trouble is it almost becomes overwhelming to the point where it's depressing and yeah. people shut off. And I think the trouble is people are asking you for money, for Christian aid, for this, for, um, you know, yeah. I don't know, Samaritan's Purse. But where do you put the money? Because one of the things, and I have to say, that I am a little suspicious where some charities are concerned that giving them money, although maybe when you look at your £5, say, uh, five pence of the five pounds actually goes into the pocket of the person who needs it, yeah. and I think that's one of the things that's really difficult. It's knowing where I can put it. You've got to lower your expectations. As soon as you give that five pounds to an organisation, um, some of it will go on fundraising, and some of it will go on overhead. Some of it's going to be used to, to keep the keep the lights turned on, and some of it's going to be to you know give to fly an expatriate out, someone like me, fly a doctor out, and. You know, I'll have a driver and I'll have a place to live and I'll have food paid for and things like this. And so the money is going to get diluted pretty quickly. But um, that said, I think that the big decision you've got to make is between giving it to an emergency. So somewhere like Darfur, Congo, Syria, Gaza, um, Iraq, places 
absolutely dire straits, or you give it to a poor country which is stable and where you can spend the money more convincingly. So do you try to in Uganda or um, Botswana or South Africa on some project like that, which would be longer term? Um, and I guess for me, I would always choose the emergency. Um, and the reason is that there's no other way of making the emergency better. But if you're a kid in Syria at the moment who hasn't got any food, um, hasn't got any water, hasn't got any health care, the private sector can't fix that for you. There's no, there's no market solution to that. Um, the only people who can do that work are organizations like the Red Cross or Doctors Without Borders um, who have the experience and the expertise to do it. And those are the two organizations, at least personally, that I give money to because I think they work in two different ways and they work in the two ways that are best and they're very experienced. Um, and I think if you had to pick one place to put your money, you'd put it on healthcare. Um, so I guess that with my five pounds, when I want to change the world out there, I give it to Daughters Without Borders or I give it to the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC. Um, and they both campaign to stop wars and they provide healthcare to, to civilians who are, who are suffering as a result of wars. And I think that's, that's, that's pretty good. But some of your money will then go on stuff that seems frivolous. Some of the money that you give to them will be spent on just making the war worse. Um, and that's that's really tough to swallow, but that shouldn't be that shouldn't be a, a scoop, right? That shouldn't be a scan. That should just be that it's hard to do these things, and sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we get it wrong. So I would say everyone should be spending a bit of money overseas and a bit of money at home. And if you want to spend it overseas, I'd spend it through um, international NGOs, and those are the two that I'd give it to. What, what about that? Does that make sense as an answer? I mean, I don't know. I, I, that, I'm telling you what <laughs> it's I. It's a do. good answer. It's a very good answer. One of my things, I think as well, and this could just be one of my Emilyisms, um, is that are there not places that we don't know about that we can't reach because of roads, because of access, because of whatever? Yeah. And one of the things I think that I certainly feel recently, perhaps I look into things a bit more than the average person, but like at the moment it's all Gaza, it's all Iraq. What's happening in Syria is not. I'm not. There's there's not a question of this is worse because it's all you know. It's all horrendous. So I'm not saying it's worse, but what's happening in Syria and then as a result of all the world's focus being on Iraq and everything, what's happening with Ukraine, it's all terrible. So how do you know that what you're seeing and what's being reported, like it's it's the accuracy? I think sometimes like, I, I. Go on. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, it, it's no, no, finish what you're saying. So basically, one of my things is sort of thinking, are we being shown a select filtered version of what's really going on? And are there places that need help that we just don't even know about? Um, I think we, we, we are necessarily right. So I think that at least whenever I've worked in a place that's in the headlines, like in, in you know, Darfur, the, the genocide in Darfur was, was in the headlines a lot a few years ago. And George Clooney would go out there. And so... Working there, you realise that actually this is bad, but there are lots of other places that are just as bad which aren't getting the attention. Mm. And that, that's why... And there has to be a story to report it. I mean, the story of just a load of confusing tribes in Africa killing one another is a really difficult story to tell, whereas the story in Darfur was appealing because it was a... Um, it had celebrities, it had a genocidal theme, it had, um, you know, the... There were a number of elements to it that meant that it made sense in, in the Western media. But that's why I give my money to Dr. 
Borders Without Borders or the ICRC is that every year both those organisations publish list of neglected neglected crises where they'll say that never mind Ukraine, what about what's happening on the Thai Burmese border? What about Central African Republic? What about the Sahara we in, in Western Western Sahara? Um, you know these places which we've never heard of. You know the Rohingya that that, that tribe is having a terrible time in Burma at the moment. Um, identifying those groups of people is very hard. And if you're just an average person trying to make a decent fist of your life in London, which is what most of us are doing, you can't be expected to sit down and go beyond the newspaper to say, where should I really be spending my money? And, and there are some organizations that will do it, but there aren't very many. Um, and most organizations like to work in the headlines because they get more money for working in the headlines. So that's why I think giving, giving your unearmarked money, don't say I'm giving money to the hurricane or the, or the earthquake, say I'm giving money to this organization to spend how they think best. I, I think that's, that's what works well. But yeah, for, for sure, um, the, story of, the story of what's happening in Ukraine is not, it's not the worst suffering in the world at the moment. What about like an investment for the future? Because one of the things we're going to do through through True Lads, through the company, is we're going to find a couple of guys, like young guys, in, in an area where they need sponsoring because they've been orphaned or whatever, and they need you know money for education and all the rest of it. Because we did something similar not so long ago, and it was really good because when people got drunk, they would email and like PayPal some money and say that's for him to have a kebab or that's for him to have some football boots and although obviously it wasn't really going to give him a kebab or some football boots it was the fact that it was people getting involved in an entertaining way and were pledging money to help someone who really needed it do you think that that maybe modernizing the way that charities do things would be much more effective I think for a couple of reasons. I, mean, I think it's really good when people give a shit about other people. And if the thing that you give a shit about is that a kid has some football boots, that's a lot better than giving a shit about whether or not you, you've got some new football boots yourself. So I don't, I don't think it's more important to give food or medicine or football boots. I think it's all important. And so modernising charity, first of all, it allows you to do something that motivates you, but also it, it means that you're involved with people's actual lives. I mean, if, if you can modernise it to a point where you can really say this kid and these football boots, that's a connection to that bit of the world that probably goes beyond the football boots. You know, you, you buy the football boots. Once you realise he doesn't have a football or a school or an education or a hospital, you start to be involved in what it means to be poor or marginalised in bits of the world. Which And it's really, I, I think it's I think those things are really hard to imagine. Like, even if you work, even if you work in the charity sector and you work in places like that all the time, I'm I'm often left going, oh, one of these people get a fucking job. You know, it's very hard to stop. <laughs> it, it's very hard not to hate people who who are having a hard time, because if you don't hate them, you have to feel sorry for them, and it's really really unsustainable feeling sorry for people. Um, and so instead being somehow caught up in their struggle, in, in feeling some sense of solidarity of wanting to build a bit of a bridge where you get them the football boots and you invest in whether or not they won the match. I mean, that's, it's a simple example, but I think making the world a smaller place in that way makes it easier not to have people who are disadvantaged. Do you think that there is any kind of um, point at which maybe sort of morals and sort of reputation is more... Basically, it's like... I do a lot of things with a lot of charities and one of them I work with is an animal charity and I worked with some girls that I did some interviews with who were strippers and they love dogs and so we came up with this 
concept after a drink or ten um that we could do like a night where we did we had pole dancing and they had like tape across their boobs that said protect the puppies so it was like we were raising money for the dogs but obviously in a like a stripping way and <laughs> I thought it was brilliant because who doesn't love strippers who doesn't give money to strippers they make a lot more in an evening than we would do shaking a charity box around town and the charity rejected it because they said it was just like disgraceful but that's the problem I think sometimes is as much as I'm not saying that you know I'm not advocating stripping and I'm not knocking stripping I think however you pay your tax you pay your tax but I just think that that's the problem there is a real reluctance for change and I think sometimes, for me, I just think anyhow, anyhow you make the money, providing it's not illegal, it doesn't hurt anybody, do it. And what, I like, what I like about that idea is that that's, that, that kind of humanises the strippers as well as making you care about the puppies. I yeah. think the, the objection that people have about stripping is that it somehow commodifies women or that it treats women as objects. And if those objects care about puppies, then you go, well, they, they're real human beings like everybody else. They happen to be taking their clothes off to music and whatever you think of that once you once you're the kind of person who does what you do to raise money for charity that's a complete that puts you into a different category doesn't it it's like mm. it, it, and that seems to me to be good for stripping and for puppies and gem, generally for, i mean I, d I don't know how you can object too strongly to people doing something which is harmless and i think it's because people kind of think you're doing something and you're attaching your name to their charity and, you know, I, I think that there's kind of people are very fearful of judgments. And I just think that that's where it can be very difficult. It's sort of, I don't know, I, I would be of the opinion if I was running a charity, anybody who wants to raise money for any of my charities or my, my plight to be an MP, uh, you can do whatever you like, providing it's legal and it's not painful, that's fine, do it. Um, and you I get, think that's you get worried then that you, you get into the business of your home, you know, the homeless bags which are making life terrible for the people in Bangladesh. That suddenly you find out that the strippers are actually twelve-year-old Albanian prostitutes, and suddenly you go, oh, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't have been doing that after all. Oh no, because the ones that I was using, I, I you know, I know, and they're oh, definitely okay, not, not twelve okay, or yeah. Albanian. They're <laughs> they're not hard done to. Trust me. They're doing they're doing it hard. <laughs> There was good research on that one. My other charity idea, like I, I, so this is like a Dragon's Den pitch-a-thon, um, is that we have um, a plastic bin in every supermarket that will accept one or any other stores of such places. Um, and it's by the door and it has a label on it and it says life jacket. And you put your coat in it that you don't want anymore and jumpers. And then somebody picks up the um, tub every month or whatever and takes the coats to the homeless people or to people who are really poor only the person who does that is a person who's on benefits and they get paid for that. They get their benefit, but they get paid for it in inverted commas. So they then have a job to put on their CV. So they're getting work experience whilst also doing something good, which is providing coats for homeless people. And the only overhead of the charity is the bin, which some nice company should donate because it's a nice thing to do. you're being mean to my charity. <laughs> oh, no, no, I really like it. Now, go and do it and it'll be good. You can always fix the difficulties, whatever, whatever the problems are. You can always fix them if they come. Right now, that's necessarily how you have to work, right? You go, okay, there'll, there'll be something that we haven't thought of and then we'll, then we'll do it. Do you know what, what the way I work... 
exactly. So so basically, there was an issue with the, with the benefits and the payments and all that. So what we then do is I contact homeless shelters. I, I don't know, like Shelter, the organisation, and I say, I want to do this for you. We're going to call it Life Jackets because I think that's quite a good name. Um, and then we're going to put this, and then I ring the supermarket and say, if you do this, that's a really nice thing to do and you'll look really good and I'll find somewhere that will do your advertising or do something like, I believe in like skills trade, so I'll do something for you if you do something for me. So then they put the thing by the door, shelter goes and collects it once a month or whatever, there's no overheads, there's no nonsense, I'm not going to have a charity where I'm paying zillions of people to sit in office and go, I'm so charitable, I take £24,000 a year and I don't do fuck all for people. So we don't want that. I don't like those sorts of charities. Um, so then it would be the cost of the bins, which I get someone to donate because they get to put their name on it and make them look really nice. And then they can claim their tax back for being a charity bin provider. So that makes the company happy. Then there's no cost at all for the organisation. And then it's just a question of, of helping people for no cost, really. I like it. I think it's really... I think really good. I mean, I think all if, if, as a model for a charity, the model of filling an office with people working on good salaries and feeling like they work for charity, although they're obviously working for free, it's just a job like any other, always makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. Whereas anything like that that cuts out all the middlemen, all the fundraising and everything, and just goes to get a coat to a homeless person who needs a coat in the quickest way possible seems to me to be a, a really good way of doing it. And then they um, could also sell them to people who can't afford it, like the food bank idea. It's like a clothes bank idea, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The only, my only discomfort with anything like that is that then you get a feeling of going, well, I, I gave them a coat. I mean, what else could they possibly want? And it's like, well, we also... You also need, a, you also need to then... Just re- and this is the hard bit because it's vague, right? Is to go. You need to remember that also, we need to do other things for homeless people to address the underlying problems, which are fast and really, really difficult to do. Okay. You can't relax when you're giving someone a coat. <laughs> but I don't think you're relaxed. You're not relaxed, are you? No, I've got another charity idea for you. <laughs> Okay, so this is my other charity idea. So we have old people who can't afford heating and can't really eat and some of them are really lonely and really sad. And then there is a bit of a culture where there is some people who are having children maybe when they're a bit younger and they don't really know how to sew, they don't know how to cook and so children perhaps aren't getting the great nutritional value. So you literally pair a granny up with a family that needs some sort of bigger sense of family. Then the young people go in and they can mow the lawn and change the light bulbs and do all the things that the older person can't do for themselves and then the older person perhaps helps them out with babysitting or cooking or sewing and you almost like create like a, a like an instant sort of foster family for each other i think that's really nice and what i really like about that is that no one no one gives a shit about old people that children children can't very homeless people at certain times of year are great that, that there are certain things where people not not enough people but there are a decent number of people who care about it, but old people, we just, it's the least fashionable, least glamorous, least well-funded bit of charity. And I, think and I love funny. old people, and I think it's really sad because there's an old guy that I go to see, and he said to me, I said to him, we were talking about relationships and sex and things like that, and I said to him, what, you know, what's the, like, the perfect woman? He's like 80 odd years old, he should know. And he said, um, he said, Emily Love, you want a nice woman who's like a good cup of tea, you want her to be hot, a bit wet, and a bit sweet. <laughs> And I mean, who wouldn't want to spend a day with him? What an amazing man. So you should, people should do that if you're not weird and criminal and don't have guilt fetishes and all that weird stuff. You should go to, um, like, a local um, 
what do you call like care home or something like that and you should volunteer to to do something take them out to the pub or do something there was an amazing thing recently where there was a guy i don't know if you saw it and he basically did a runner from the nursing home to go to his um celery breakery thing in normandy with yeah, his yeah wonderful well we got hold of his address and we put it out and he got over a thousand cards because our audience all sent him cards for his birthday oh, <laughs> That's really good. And he was amazing. And I was thinking, this is what we should do. We should have like an old person a month. You know, like they have a dog a month on the RSPCA sites and things. Oh, yeah. We should have like an old person a month and we should all like do stuff for them. I think that's really... But that's the kind of thing where you go, oh, this, is this charity or is this just being a human being? Like maybe it doesn't need to be like... A, like, like you're right. Like that's, that's what people should be doing is doing an old person a month or looking after, just caring about the old people in their lives. You probably don't need a big organ. Like, if people were less of a bunch of self-centered shits, then I'm, I'm not like I don't mean that, but I'm not. But if we lived in a world yeah, no, where definitely. old people were valued a bit more, then we wouldn't. You know, you wouldn't need an organisation to do it. We'd all, we'd all just go and go and see the old guys next door because they're still useful and interesting. And people forget because I know that with my local old people, they can't even change a light bulb. Like I knew a woman who sat in the dark for years, so after five o'clock, her, her house was dark because you don't really think that they can't stand on a ladder and change a light bulb, and, yeah. and little things like that. And you can, you can, you know, you can just do things for people. You should also, they should also. But I think the trouble is also it is open to abuse, and this is the horrible thing about you know all of these things is you have to be so careful these days. People have to be police checked. You have to know who everybody is, and yeah. and everybody's vulnerable. And I think that is one of the reasons the things don't work. And that's, that's, why, that's why the sort of neighbourliness is... is but, I, but I don't know how, how you go about changing the world in that way to say we all need to be a bit nicer to old people. I mean, God, that's, that's a difficult thing to do. But, it, but you see, I think means, you do yeah, all of my things. We're all going to be old, right? It's going to be all of us. But you just do it. You see, I think if I set all of those things up where I live and showed everybody how well it worked and everybody was like, oh, that's really nice, then it becomes like a recognisable blueprint and then it could roll over into another county and then another county and then eventually you have counties doing that and that's how you change it. And then America and Canada go, hey, like, like Emily's amazing. And I'd be like, obviously. And then they would do it over there as well. <laughs> And then I, then Obama would invite me over and I could sort out some of their problems too. And then I become the arrogant twat who goes all over the world thinking I know everything, you see? See how it happens? That, you become like some <laughs> Victorian colonial, you know, on your great civilising mission, <laughs> dealing with the grubby people of the world. Only with much yeah, more entertaining and speeches. Eventually you're running a bloody empire, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, you go full circle, you know, you've become become your own nightmare I do that, that's a sad thought <laughs> no, it'd, be good. it'd be good I'm sure your empire would be a, a, a nice place I think it would so tell me about your brother we should we should pimp him what does he do where oh, is he pimping brother Chris yes I've got a, I've got an identical twin brother called uh, Chris Van Tullican and he um, well his main thing is that he's doing he's a doctor and he's doing his PhD in molecular biology but he also does a bunch of really interesting shows on the BBC the main one is called Trust Me I'm not a doctor where he takes on all the myths and legends that people think about their bodies and their, for, for adults. Um, and then he does, goodness, having said I was going to pimp him, I now don't know, I don't know the names of his other shows. There's one about travel, there's one about, oh, bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> so I, got, well, I live in New York, so I can't, I can't, uh, I can't watch them on the, on the iPad. So, um, but he's, he's, well, he did a 
show called Cloud Lab, which was wonderful. They went and chased clouds across the states in a, in a balloon and looked at the um, looked at the science of clouds. He did a show called Operation Iceberg, um, where he went and looked at uh, life on an iceberg um, for the BBC Natural History Unit. So he's done a bunch of kind of extreme medicine sciencey stuff, and he's a very he's a very sweet guy. But there are lo- lots of nice lots of nice myths, right? Like the myth of getting dehydrated is a good that's a good myth. Like we all believe we need eight, eight glasses a day, right? Mm. And so he um, he was looking particularly at these sports drinks claims that say you know if you get dehydrated by you know one percent dehydration one percent loss of, of um, body weight in fluid is a twenty percent loss in performance if you're an athlete. Those do you know those kind of things? Like yeah, definitely. I'm quite I'm quite into this. So yeah, it's all bollocks. So oh. there's one beautifully done study by the Australian Institute for Sport done on cyclists, and it's very hard to do dehydration. Right, so you, what you want to do is have one group of people who are dehydrated and the other group of people who um, aren't dehydrated, but they don't know which group they're in. Because obviously, if you're exercising, you're sweating, you have a drink of water, you, you feel like it must be doing oh. some good. So they did it all with IVs, so they, the psych, cyclists didn't know if they were getting IV fluids or not. And what they found was that dehydration improves your performance. So as you lose fluid per drop of blood, you actually have more red blood cells, right? Because you lose water, you end up with, with more concentrated blood. Mm-hmm. And so actually your performance improves over a long cycle where you don't hydrate um, compared to a long cycle where you do. So what they said was hydrate to thirst and nothing more. Just do whatever your body wants to do, but you don't need to worry. If you're going for a two, three-hour cycle, you, you do not, unless it's, obviously don't go crazy if you're cycling across the Sahara or something, you probably do need some fluid. But um, if you're cycling in England, Hydrate to thirst was his advice, um, and that will be your best best performance. So all kinds of nice little things like that that he looks at on the TV show. What about protein shakes? Well, so what what do you you work out, and then you have your protein after your workout? Do you? Yeah, I have one in the morning, and then I usually have one at night. Sometimes I have three, I mean, I, depending. I guess what I'd say, I mean, the protein shake after all, there, there is some evidence that if you work out, particularly if you're doing heavy weight, then taking protein shortly after working out does seem to give you a better result. That making that protein available to build muscle and to recover after a workout is good. But the protein shake in the morning, I would say, what, why don't you just have an egg? Like, apart from the fact the egg doesn't make any, it doesn't like to say it's going to give you muscles or whatever written on the egg, but an egg would be... Because I do, I do my workout and then I... I, I have like I mix my protein shakes only down to be about 100 mils because they're pretty disgusting so that's enough so I'm like work yeah. that down and then I do that rather than doing breakfast because I never I'm always rushing around and but that's, okay that makes sense then but I think anyone who believes the protein shake is better than an egg or a piece of fish or some other bit of naturally occurring protein I would say that there's, there's no evidence to say that's true but um, you look so but, cool with the shaker in the gym don't you I know that's the thing <laughs> That's what it is. I believe that if I do that, I don't hurt. If I have a workout, and that's what it is. It's my religion. (laughs) So that's good. And you have another brother too. I've seen some of that. I saw some Misfits. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a 
my show. Um, he's, he's a good director, and so he's, he's, he's trying to get his feature film made at the moment um, by the people who made Shaun of the Dead and that, all those movies, so we'll see. Well, that would be good. So you're a really untalented, boring family, aren't you? <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like you can tell... So my, my, my twin brother's got this great distinction, which I don't know if I can explain it very well, but he says it's the difference between the reality and the real thing. And the real thing is very rare. So, like, for, for my brother, you could say the, rea the reality is he's got a medical degree from Oxford, he's got his amazing PhD, he's writing a book, he's got his award-winning kids' show, he's on the BBC all the time, and, yeah, the, the, the real thing is something else, right? The real, when you meet these people who are the real thing, it's not that he's a bullshitter, but that doesn't add up to someone who's kind of unique or special necessarily. Maybe I should have used myself and not my brother as the example, because he's, he's, he's a lovely guy. But the, um, I don't know, if, do you see the difference? That there are people mm -hmm. who can say, oh, I've got all this fancy qualification, I do all this cool stuff, and it looks good. And you meet them and go, oh, you're, you're a regular person, you're just a normal person. I see. I <laughs> don't <laughs> explain that very well. In my head, it's really Basically, <laughs> Chris is the shit one <laughs> that's really distinctly average who just bought all these qualifications on the internet. <laughs> With Zand here has actually gone and lived this oh, life. <laughs> no, I think I think you can sort of you can tell a story. I mean, you know, I can tell a story that says I've got my TV show and my whatever, all this other stuff. But you know, I'm also 35, single, and my younger brother is my landlord. So you know, <laughs> what does that say? Oh, I know. One of the things that I found when I was um, looking you up on the internet, which was amazing and something we need in this country, is the Daily Show. And I'm oh, going yeah. to put a link to this because the thing he did on Ebola, when he said about Ebola leaving the hospital, the door open, I nearly cried. I thought it was so funny. And then you appear and um, <laughs> he likens you to Dr. Affleck, which I thought was really funny. And then he goes, worth it. <laughs> it's very odd. I mean, basically he said that he would have sex with me even if I had Ebola. That's, That's nice. Um, it was uh, It was literally, uh, I got an email from one of my students, I was on a plane when it was on, and then I got off the plane, I got an email from one of my undergraduates saying, hey, you were featured on The Daily Show, which I just thought, well, that's great, they'll have made fun of me, they'll have made me look like an idiot, I'll have said something wrong, and they'll have made, uh, and instead, I couldn't have written anything more flattering for him to say if I'd wanted to, it was literally the most flattering thing he possibly could have said, and so I don't know what, I don't know what to think of that, like, I just go, well, that's... That's good. That happened once in my life, that that one guy... Do you think it will get you sex? Do you think that that will, like, spur on the female population to hunt you down? Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> I think that, you know, but then, then they'll meet me. I mean, unfortunately, if it, just, if it just was a direct link between watching the television and, and having the sex, then you could... You could <laughs> but that would, that would be a thing, but of course that isn't how it works, is it? Then they have to meet you, and then you go, well, this is very awkward, because actually, I don't look a lot like Ben Affleck, I'm losing my hair, and I'm a bit overweight, and, you know, suddenly they're going, oh, you're a bit, actually, you're just a doctor, so you're a bit of a nerd, you're not like, you're not, you're not, because obviously Ben Affleck is a massively rich, good-looking movie star, and I'm an infectious disease doctor, and that's a bit different, isn't it? So I think in the end, it would, I think it's very hard to imagine that it would lead to the, the kind of thing you're, you're suggesting, unfortunately. Who do you think is the funniest person on Twitter? Uh, a, uh, I think, I think, okay, so I think James Blunt is extremely funny. He's amazing, isn't he? Oh, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. Um, I, I love James Blunt, and
there's a woman called Megan Amran who is really, really wonderful as well. I don't know if you've encountered her. I haven't. No, I'm going to look her up in a minute. She's really, she's really good. She's an American comedian, and and she's um yeah she's absolutely filthy, but she's she's brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, those are probably my my top two. You're meant to pick me. Goodness, oh, yeah, you definitely don't listen to my show, do you? I was idly tinkering about on Twitter and I started looking through all the pictures you were posting and you had the bread gloves and the masturbation hut and all those things. It was really, it was really making me laugh. No, it's lovely. And then I, thought, I, then I suddenly found that you had 60,000 followers or something absurd like that and I couldn't then, it, I was trying to then work out, try, try and get out like who you were and what you did. And, um, I know. And, and now you'll never get rid of me, aren't you lucky? <laughs> no, it's wonderful. I think, I think you're wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, Emily for MP. <laughs> Um, and you're going to run for MP in that? I, I, absolutely, I actually think I, I will. chief of staff or a medical advisor or something. I can you should do that. That would be good. You can, make, you can make me a minister when you're in charge. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. That's how much oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> no, it's all right. It's all right. Someone will hold your hand through it once you're... <laughs> yeah, tell me what to say. Write my speeches. <laughs> <laughs> Not even. <laughs> I think it would be amazing. I'd be a really good fan. I think... Um, why don't you do something like that? Why do you not go, okay, so I've done all this doctor stuff and that's really impressive and great, but, you know, do you ever just think that maybe you chose, not the wrong career, but do you ever think that maybe, you know, you could do something different with your life? Um, I do think, I think if you want to change the world, going into politics is quite a good thing to do, but um, I think that I would not be very good at it uh, and it would be very undignified. I think... There'd be a moment where I had to go and play football with some kids at a school and they'd just call me a tosser and it would all be very awkward. And there'd be some, you know, those moments where you go, oh, now he's got to go and fry an egg in front of the press and you look like, it, like a, a tit. And I think that that would be the really difficult bit. Like in English politics, I live in New York and American politics is, is, is very glamorous, right? Like it is quite cool yeah. and you get the White House and all the, the limos and whatever. And English politics isn't like that, which, which is good. I mean, that's really good, but... It doesn't then, um, I think the business of becoming Prime Minister would just be one demeaning thing after another. Do you think that being an attractive um, Ben Affleck doctor, that you're being a bit selfish by leaving the UK and going to America? Do you think you're depriving I'm, the UK of your presence? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accept the premise of that question. And, um, yeah, um... Do you think you'd ever come back to the UK? Oh, I'd love to come back to the UK. I, I think um, that, that is the long-term plan. I have a little boy who lives in Western Canada, and so um, I'm a bit trying to be closer to him so I can go and fly and see him every few weeks. Um, and so that's, that's the real motivation to be in the US. I mean, I have a nice research job, and I'm in a place with the United Nations and lots of NGOs, and all, all the kind of war medicine and stuff that I like to do. Is, 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 um, it works quite well in, in New York, but in the long term, being, being in the, the UK's home. So whereabouts in the UK? What's your kind of like? Everyone has a place that they call home. London. Born, and, born and bred in, in Hammersmith, and that's that's really my home. That's, that's that's where it feels like home. Oh, you're homesick now. Am I depressing you? <laughs> a little, it, no, because you've got a nice you've got a nice English accent, nice English <laughs> manner, so it's, it feels um, 
feels like a little connection to home. It's nice. Aww, you see? Is there, oh, I know. We need to tell people where they can find you. Uh, on, oh, well, on, so, on, uh, so I am on Twitter. I, ha I meant to have a website, and then I, the website seems to have gone down now. So, well, what do you think they want to find you for, though? I mean, they can always send me a, send me an, e they can send me an email. I love how scared you feel by that question. I mean, they can find me. I'm, I'm on Tinder. There you go. If you swipe, if you swipe far enough and long enough, then you've got your No, do you know I was on Tinder today, um, and Wait. it only goes 160 kilometres. I think there should be a worldwide Tinder. Like that's it's inhumane in a way. I don't see why we should. Do you know what I found today? I had a 70-year-old guy, and I was like, good on you, worth a go, but not going to happen. Um, and then <laughs> I I just found that um, I think Tinder's quite a... <laughs> It's quite a it's quite a strange place. I don't know. I just find that I flick through Tinder, and I just get really bored. I just think, oh, it's, it's like a... I, I don't work on, on just somebody's face, so it doesn't really work for me. I'm sort of like... No, people aren't, people aren't very... Um not very witty for the most part on Tinder. My, my favourite um, person that I actually met on, on Tinder was someone who was running a website that said they put their pictures on Tinder and then she, she put a website which was www.howidintmeetmyboyfriend.tinder.com <laughs> and then when you went to the website it has, it's very funny, I think that is, if you Google it you can find it. Um, I think that is, I think it's like how I definitely didn't meet my boyfriend on Tinder.com, I think is how it would go. What do you think um, would impress you, though? If a girl was Tindering you, you've swiped right on her, she gets beyond excited, what does she send you in a first message that makes you go, yes? Oh, just, just, um, I don't think, I think that's too hard a code to crack. I think you're probably not looking for that, that one thing. I, I am, I'm absolutely looking just, for that one thing. Just, Really, you think there's something you could say that would just do yes. it? Yes. Like, do you want to hear mine? Because really? you've got enough information. It's not even like you're in you're in context. You're just in this void where I think I think you've just got to have some. I mean, it depends. It, 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 usually, people people who, who make one. I like I like a bit of feedback. I mean, I guess that is the one thing that does work quite well for me. Is a bit of feedback where people will say, you know, an honest um, assessment of what I've put up there. But a bit of feedback about the profile, just saying, like, I don't like that picture, I like this one, I, I think you look a bit stupid there, that, you should trim your hair, you should get a, whatever. All that, all that stuff I find quite helpful, because we don't get any feedback in life, really, do we? We don't. I give are, everybody feedback. Well, but... that, you know, but that's why you're a force, you, you're a force for good in the world, aren't you? Because you, you, you're improving people. Either that, or, or I'm a devastating person to know. <laughs> no, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, um, all have to get, you know, the crucible of life has to forge you one way or another. Do you want to hear my Tinder opener? Ultimately, you have to take your medicine, I think. You do. Mike, are you ready for my Tinder opener? Yeah. I go, do you want to play Titanic? And they always go, yeah. And I go, I'm going to yell iceberg and you're going to go down. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> <laughs> or you go, <laughs> I'll get a coin and it's either going to be head at mine or tail at yours.
Well, most people just go, yes. <laughs> I think it is. You need to go. You need to. Um, oh, f should I find your wife? I could find your wife. Have you got good form in that area? Yes. You're good at that. I'm amazing at that. Okay. All right. Yeah, it'll be fine. I just need criteria: do's, don'ts. You know. <laughs> right, well, I'll send you. I'll send you an email after the after the show. <laughs> so, is there anything else you would like to tell everybody about yourself? <laughs> to get a hangover okay well you tell me oh no I, I well there's several theories but i find that when i drink if i drink wine and i also drink as much water as i'm having wine so if i drink wine and soda water in kind yeah. of equal parts i have a i have a abnormal tolerance to alcohol i can drink quite a lot and be completely fine um yeah. so if i drunk i don't know maybe like a bottle of wine in an evening um with the same amount of water the next day i'm fine i get up and i go for a run and i'm fine Somebody but said that cucumber. I think um, I think is yeah. Somebody I was reading on the internet. They were saying that cucumber. Apparently, if you eat cucumber before you go to bed, you don't get a hangover. I can't well, imagine. Well, the meal has been better than like just two two people in my life have now told me that, and I feel like if that was really true, it's not like cucumber some rare thing that only grows in the Himalayas that you have to hike through <laughs> to get to or anything. You just buy it in Tesco. So <laughs> I don't it know. Can't, it can't work. I think there is a certain amount of genetics because both me and my sister are the same. We can both drink, you know, a, a fair amount of alcohol and be completely yeah. fine. And yet friends of mine would be absent. But I think it's fitness as well, because I do think that if you're the fitter you are, the more you can drink. Yeah. That's definitely right. And that's very interesting. I don't know why that is, um, but I, I think that the fitness one is right. The genetics one is definitely right. What's, what's your ethnicity? Are you, are you a kind of Anglo-Saxon through and through? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you only have to go drinking with a Polish friend and a Japanese friend to know that genetically um, different races process alcohol extremely differently uh, and we have we know the genes for it i mean there's a gene called cytochrome p450 or there's a protein called cytochrome p450 and an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase and both of those things are very different in different populations so you're absolutely right that um you know if, if you're born with it then that's then that's great and i think also it's like there's i know i don't when i was younger i could I'd be like i'll have tequila i'll have wine i'll have this i'll have vodka I'll, i just don't do that anymore i don't do stupid drinks <laughs> like, i can't cope 
to be that rule about, you know, mixing your drinks really does make you feel worse. But I wonder if it's, it may also just be representative of the kind of evening you're having. Like, obviously, if you're having a nice dinner in a civilized restaurant, you're just drinking wine. The kind of evening where you're drinking wine, beer, tequila, vodka, and everything, it's, it's probably just a it's no, like no one ever, ever had a quiet night in mixing the top shelf, did they? I would hate to say that, yes, I have. (laughs) (laughs) My friend and I, who is also a nurse, so she should know better, we, um, one random Tuesday, were playing I've Got a Shot Roulette thing, which is a brilliant game. Everybody should buy it. Um, And basically, you fill up all of the little glasses on the spinning wheel thing with different things. And to start with, we thought, okay, we'll just do it with um, cocktails. So we just put cocktails in them. Soon we went through all of those. Then we went through everything. We went through wine, we went through champagne, we went through tequila, Patron, um, oh, Pachin that came from my relatives in Ireland. Um, Just ridiculous. Pachin is really, really interesting. It's horrendous, but it doesn't give you a hangover. However, the other 33 things we drank did. <laughs> so, but yeah, we did. We just sat and got absolutely... Do you know, it's really fun to do that sometimes. Well, yeah, no, I'm not saying that, that you didn't get... But what I mean is that, that, of course, then you have a terrible hangover. But mm. no one ever says, well, I'll just have one flaming Sambuca and then go to bed, do they? That's, so if you're having that evening, it doesn't matter whether it's a Tuesday evening or not, it ends up not being a quiet evening in. So any evening where you're drinking... All these different things. I see what you mean, it's yeah. going to be an off-the-hook evening, as opposed, as opposed, you know, it would it would just be very unusual if over the course of a of a, of a family meal you just started with a with a little shot of tequila and then you maybe had a glass of wine and then half a glass of beer and then finished off with a sip of port and then you go, oh, well, I feel great the next morning. Maybe your drink is fine, but of course, no one ever does that. <laughs> I, get, I mean, maybe they do. I don't know. That's just not what I. I feel like I want to bring my family up that way now. <laughs> <laughs> just, just like always. <laughs> it's another course. Have another shot. <laughs> you a mixture of, of um, yeah. <laughs> Rum and wine. <laughs> that would be so good, wouldn't it? To just sort of, you know, round for shots, or just like your random coffee morning. It's just have shots, you know. But then that is healthier. A single shot of blue curacao and then. <laughs> Oh, that horrendous aftershock stuff. I had half a pint of that in the year. That was not nice. Yeah, that's all very nasty stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So it'll be interesting. I mean, it's quite fun doing all the research on this because, of course, huge amounts of research are done. Uh, Huge amounts of research is done, I suppose, on on alcohol and on hangovers because hangovers cause us hundreds of thousands of hours of lost work. But that's a ridiculous thing, though, isn't it? You know, you can potentially develop a serum to cure Ebola, we can potentially cure cancer, and yet no one can cure like colds and hangovers. Like it's bizarre. Yeah, that's no nonsense. If you've got a medical friend, you can get a hangover cure that will will leave you feeling like a million dollars. I mean, it's like the elixir of life. If you, if you go, the average emergency department in the UK could cure your hangover in half an hour, make you feel like a million dollars. Um, it's just that we don't like to do it because then everyone would. And that, my dear friends, is why women want to marry doctors. Now I understand. (laughs) (laughs) Now it all has become clear. Yes. That would be so good. I'm, you know, that would be really good. I did. I had no idea. You see how how wrong I was. Oh yeah. No, that's the that's the thing. If you can get if you can get a doctor willing to do it. There's a guy in Las Vegas who has one of these big rock and roll tour buses. He's an anaesthetist. And he goes around Las Vegas 
and you can pay for a, an hour in his bus where he'll he'll medicine you and make you feel better, and then you can get back to gambling and prostitutes and whatever other disgusting <laughs> stuff you're doing in Las Vegas. But he's, you know, I mean, he's really put his medical degree to good use, hasn't he? I mean, what a what a noble what a legend. Guy, you know? <laughs> Here I am, like some kind of idiot, worrying about these people, poor old people in West Africa with a boner when I should have been doing his job. We can have the hangover bus. Yeah, but maybe take the hangover bus around Africa. <laughs> would probably be well, no, it'd be a idea. None of these are good. Your earlier charity ideas were good. My, like, hangover cures without borders idea is a very bad idea. So of all of my charity ideas, which one should I do? Which is the best one? Okay, so you have £10,000, and you, I've pitched my ideas to you. Which one do you I support? Think I, do, I think I would probably do the food bank, and, and here's why. I think it involves, I think it involves um, the private sector, which I always think is really interesting, and that, that, that compels change. Um, I think it raises the issue of hunger in the UK, which is really important, and people think no one starts in the UK, and they do. Um, and I think it's, in a way, it's the most controversial one. It's the most fiddly one to do, because you say people... Oh, it's food banks for rich people, whatever. So I like that one because it's fiddly and complicated and difficult and you'll have to you have to work at it. That's where I'd put my 10 grand. And it should be called Buy One, Give One Free. I love it. I love it. That's brilliant. And then um, if you do it in the supermarket... Big, but, but it's still called... That's still bog off, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. the whole thing. So it's Buy One, Give One Free. And so the supermarkets do on their own brand product, so it's cheaper for them to give than it is for money. They'd still be able to do some tax relief on the charitable nation side. It's good PR for them, and it means people are more likely to buy their own produce rather than those of the bigger companies. So, yeah, it's like I'm very good at these ideas. They're very well thought out. I love, no, they're great. They're great. I think I think they're all. Um, I think they're all ideas. I think the main thing is that if you have an idea that you want the world to be a better place and people to have less of a hard time, then that's that's just the right place to begin. And there'll be a million people to tell you it's a shitty idea or there are problems or you know whatever. But um. Slavery, so you know it's not not a reason not to do it. I'm not going to throw myself under a horse, though. I don't know. It depends on what you're into. <laughs> it's not my kind of thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't we don't need to do that. No. When's Operation Out, John? When can people watch it? It's on the iPlayer, though, isn't again. it? It's is, a new season. Um, we've just filmed it, and it's starting again. I think in October. I don't have a date yet, but I'll, I'll tweet it, and I'll tweet it at you. Yeah, stick it in my face. Um, I it was on. I've I've watched a new one from the World War One thing that was on. Oh, did you see? That? I actually haven't seen that. It's good because you're just desperate to press the button, and I was thinking, Chris, shut up and press the button. <laughs> so I'm completely with you on that. <laughs> we had so much fun doing that, um, doing those explosions. It was absolutely extraordinary, and we had to be. Um, we had to be. Obviously, you don't want to blow blow people to bits for children because children's TV, and so the first of all. World War is a really tricky one for, for young kids. Um, but I think in the end, I mean, I've seen the rough cuts of it and I saw it while we do the voiceover, but I didn't see it when it was broadcast. Um, but you see, I, I never, ever thought, and I know it sounds a stupid thing to say, but I would never have thought that people in the war were left deaf. Like, I just never even thought about that. And I think that's why it was so interesting. I was like, I'd never have thought of that. No, it's, it, it had a huge effect, yeah. And modern warfare, we get we, we have health and safety in the workplace even when we're even when we're blowing up Iraqi women and children. We, we look after people's hearing now. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, 
very, it's very weird. If you could change one thing in the world, what would you change? Uh, I would be, I'm afraid I'm going to go for the old chestnut here. I'm going to say world peace. I'm going to do it. There we go. How boring. Does everyone say that? Um, I think selfish people say legalise prostitution and cannabis. And, um, I mean, I those, those are on the list. I mean, those are on the list. I think, I think, um, I think those are both, both good things to do. But, but don't um, you have to have people harmed in order to have peace, though? Um, I, I, I think... Yeah, I, I know it's a glib answer, but I think all, my experience of war is that it is always bad that it is always bad for everyone involved and that it's a very bad way of reaching a decision about anything. Um, and uh, so but if you're asking a thing that I could actually do, I mean, that's more like a make-a-wish, like you give mm. me a genie and I can just say stop all the people fighting. Um, my make-a-wish, what would it be? My, my, like make a law, that kind of thing. Straightforward law. Well, that's interesting. Drugs are probably up there then. If you had to pick one law to make the third world a better place that would be easy to pass, it would be legalising. In fact, cannabis, I mean, it would be cannabis, but it would be the lot of them. Legalising, regulating and taxing um, narcotics would, would be very, very high on my list of things that I think would be a good thing to do. I would give all the old people heating and food. That's a very, that's a very good thing to do as well. I think we might be able to do a bit more of that if we... Um, spend less money on the war on drugs. Maybe that's what I do, is say stop the war on drugs and spend the money on the war on cold people, or cold old people. Or um, maybe take all the defence money and split it between old people getting heated up and, um, and um, yeah, something else worthwhile. Education, I, I suppose if I could put all that money anywhere, it would definitely be in education, more than healthcare. And I'm, I'm helping me be an MP. You are listening to the True Lad Podcast.